our time in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as you're finding your place there, I'd like to ask you to consider with me two scenarios, okay? Two situations you could find yourself in and think about how you might react in each one. And scenario number one, you believe you have a safe house which has no chance of burglary, murder, obviously you don't have toddlers, burglary, murder, and any other criminal activity. And scenario number two, you have to live in a house surrounded by violence, theft, and all kinds of evil. How would you live differently in each of those scenarios? Well, in scenario number one, you'd probably be fairly relaxed, right? You'd, you'd be at rest, you'd be at ease, you'd sleep well at night. In scenario number two, you would be like on guard all the time. You know, you maybe take, take turns taking watch and, and guarding things and uh, maybe carrying your gun around the house with you because you're afraid that at any moment something could break out. What changes the mentality in those moments is how you feel about yourself. When you and I feel safe, we tend to feel at rest, at ease. We, we don't, we're, we're not as on guard, we're not as prepared. But when we know that there is imminent danger, when there's destruction around the corner, when there's disappointment to be had, then we want to prepare for those things. We want to anticipate ways to make things safe. We want to anticipate how to have uh, success in those moments. You see, this is the problem with many of us as we contemplate our Christian faith. We think we're in scenario number one, where there is no danger, where there is no... There is no um, murder or criminal activity or evil at bay. And we begin to feel safe. And we begin to feel at rest as though there is nothing we need to do. Last week, we looked at, and I attempted to do my best to explain the verses that were before here, proclaiming Christ's victory for us. But I told you then that we still have a fight, even though the battle has already been won. We've already been given victory in Christ, but we still have a, a battle before us. And that battle causes us to live a certain way because we have to be prepared for it. But if we think that we're safe and there's nothing that needs to be done, there's, there's no danger, then our Christian life becomes apathetic. And pathetic, but apathetic. It becomes lazy, it becomes careless, it becomes um, dreary. But for Jesus and for the readers of this epistle, Christianity was not safe. Peter confronts us with a different reality. We must prepare for a dangerous Christian life. Christianity is not safe. 
Christianity is not a lazy boy religion. It, it is not a, a, a religion of, of apathy and of comfort. Jesus never came to proclaim a comfortable gospel. As a matter of fact, he says, your brothers will be against your brothers. Your children will rebel against you. There will be strife and enmity. There will be in enemies made because of this. I did not come to being peace but a, a sword. Jesus declares that the Christian life is going to be hard. It's going to be a battle. Matter of fact, if we were to take a cursory glance of the New Testament, we would see lots of battle language. And today in our text this morning, Peter is going to continue that idea. He's going to continue this idea that we need to be prepared for the battle that's before us. So with that in mind, I'd like you to read with me 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. As we hear these verses, we have to keep in mind the context. Context is king. So we, we have to keep in mind what was going on around this text and this letter. And we have to remember that what was going on in, in verses 18 through 22, we see that Christ suffered in the flesh... Once for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus was, was suffering, and he was suffering that he might save us for our good. He, he was suffering for our sake. Now, there, there, is, a, um, there, there is a little bit of a... A difference in translation here, and I believe that most modern translations are right here, but I, I also believe that looking back, Christ suffered for us, that he might, as verse 318 says, bring us to God. Christ suffered in the flesh. That's why Peter begins this passage with, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered and human flesh. We cannot get over that. You and I cannot get over the fact that we have a God that descended into human form, that humbled himself, gave up everything but love, Philippians says, that he might be humbled and, and join us in the flesh, that he might suffer and die on our behalf. 
We, ha- we, have, a, we have a Savior that, that through his death, his physical death, bore our sins that he might declare us right with God. We cannot get over that. This is not cliche Christian words. This is not something we put on a bumper sticker. This is real. This is, this is genuine faith. We believe in a Savior who died for our sins. We profess faith in one who died at the hands of angry men. What makes us think that we are going to have comfortable lives? Jesus says, these are Jesus' words, not mine, Matthew 10, 21 through 25. Brothers, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is not enough. It it is not an it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called his, the master of a, the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Think, think about this for just a minute. I'm trying to shake us from this apathetic Christianity that thinks that we can sit in our recliners and leave God's word on the side of our uh, next to us and never open its pages, and that we can continue going through life like everything is always the same, looking like everybody else, and, and being getting along perfectly with everybody else, and that that is Christianity. That is not what Christ calls us to, and that is not what Peter calls them to. He calls them to a faith that understands suffering will happen when you live like Jesus. Everything won't be easy. Welcome to church. That's hard. I, I know it's hard for us to, to compensate that and, and to, 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 to uh, consider that and to think through all of those things. The thing that, that is helpful to us is to think rightly about those things. See, you and I have expectations about everything. You and I think about everything, and we have a certain way we think about everything. That's why some of you, when you, when you go into a restaurant and the waiter or waitress doesn't do certain things, you become perturbed, right? Now, did it say on the outside of the restaurant that they are to serve you in a particular way? Did it say on the outside of the restaurant, My glass shall, your glass shall never be empty? Did it say on the outside of the restaurant, you shall never wait longer than 15 minutes for your food? No. So why are we aggravated? Because we have expectations of what it is like when you go into a restaurant, what it is like to be served well. You and I have expectations about all of life. And those expectations influence how we will consider everything that's before us. 
And we as Christians have grown too comfortable to expect comfort in the Christian life, to expect to never have to struggle, to never fight sin, to never fight the temptation to not open our Bibles, to never fight the temptation to not pray, to never fight the temptation to not, to not fight with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have for too long thought we can be comfortable but Peter is saying, since therefore we have a Savior who has suffered, arm yourselves. It's going to happen. You too will suffer. Since you worship a Savior who has suffered for your sake, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Now, now let me ask you, which of you this may be a bad question, but I'll, I'll go with it. Which of you, just, you just carry around a shotgun all day long? You just, just, you're just itching. For the, you're, you're prepared for war, right? Now, I hope there's no hand raises in here. <laughs> you're, you're, just, you're just ready for any moment. No, but the moment, the moment you believe that you're in danger... The moment that you, that you believe that there's something about to happen, you prepare yourself for that. The, the moment you believe that, there's, that there's, your job is in danger ahead of you, you begin preparing for that. The moment that you believe your, your, your lifestyle is in danger, you begin preparing for that. The moment you believe your safety is in danger, you begin preparing for that. Peter tells them, arm themselves because they should be preparing for uncomfortable things. They should be preparing for a struggle. He says, arm yourselves. Be, be prepared. How? With the same way of thinking. With the same thinking. Same thinking as who? Same thinking as what? With Christ thinking. How did Christ think about things? How did Christ how did he make it through these things? Well, he thought according to God's word. Consider for just a moment the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were told a specific truth, right? They, they, were, they were instructed by God what they should believe. And Satan comes in, and what does he do? He tempts them to disbelieve. He tempts him to think differently than God has declared. You know what? Satan has the same old trick. He tries the same exact thing. Jesus comes into the picture, right? He's in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. So if you were in the wilderness without food or drink for 40 days and 40 nights, how would you be feeling? Quite parched and quite hungry, right? Most of us, you know, one meal away and we would be parched and hungry, ready to give up everything for something to eat, right? Um, and Satan comes to him and tempts him. How does he tempt him? Using God's very words. Using God's words, he tempts him to act contrary to how God would have him to act. In the desert, he tempts him. You're the son of God. Speak to these rocks and they'll turn into bread. Is that wrong? No. He's the one, it is by his word that he created all things. By Christ, he created all things. Christ could have spoke, and those rocks would have been turned to, uh, turned to bread. So what's wrong with Satan's 
Satan's language, well, it doesn't match up with God's will. We are to prepare ourselves to think like, like Christ, and Christ thought the will of God. He, he breathed in and exhaled the, the word of God because he was the word of God become flesh. We are to think like him. And where do we find his thinking? In his word. And as we begin to arm ourselves with this biblical, rich thinking, we have to understand this is what God created us for. You realize that each of us in here is different from the rest of creation because God gave us a brain. God gave us a a way of thinking about life that no other animal or creation has. Now, some of us use that gift more than others, and that's okay. But, that was a joke, y'all could have laughed. But, when thinking about these things, we, God gave us a brain to think. He created us to think, and he created us to think a certain way. He created us to think in accordance with his word. And, and what is the purpose of arming ourselves for this thinking? It says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, hold on a minute. Anybody in here suffer this week? Come on, be honest. Anybody in here suffer this week? Maybe it's in different ways, right? Now, if you suffered this week, which of you didn't sin this week? Well, that's not... Wait a minute, something's not right. He says, he says that if we, if we suffer, then we have ceased from sin. What does he mean? Well, obviously, he doesn't mean we stop sinning. Because we know that by evident, empirical, empirical evidence of our own lives that that is not true. All we have to do is examine our own selves. So what does he mean when he says that for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Those who have decided that they are not going to become like the culture around them in order to avoid suffering have intentionally chosen to suffer. Now we're going to look at what this would have meant for them in their day and age and what it means for us. But when they decided to follow Jesus... That meant they were choosing suffering. They were choosing uncomfortableness. They were choosing not to have everything that they ever wanted. They were choosing difficulty. But in that choosing, that meant they were going to choose Christ over their sins. They were going to choose God's will over their will. They were going to choose to do God's word over the passions of their flesh. That is why Peter goes on to explain this. He doesn't leave us with just that. He says, so as, explaining, right? He's he's explaining what this looks like. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, when we choose, when we, when, we, when we consciously decide that we are going to, that we, we say, Jesus is Lord of my life, meaning I'm going to obey his will, his word, his, his plan for me. I am going to obey that. When we make that turn, when we go in that direction, then we have, we, we have decided that suffering is okay. 
We have decided that it's worth suffering for because I value this more. The question is, what do you value? Now, I know, I know as, a, as a young man and married and going to school, I valued education. And so I suffered for my education. I worked nonstop, no sleep. I, I gave up. I sacrificed all kinds of things for that education. Because I valued it. Once I, re- once I received that, then I suddenly started valuing my sleep a little more. Right? Because I, I, now, now something else was more valuable to me. Now, now God had used that time to help me see how I had missed out on so much with my family that, that something else was more valuable to me. So I was willing to forsake those other things in order to be with my family. Now you're like, well, that's not suffering. No, that is not suffering. But that decision had consequences. When we decide we're going to follow God's will over our own comfort, over the will of those around us, when we decide that we are going to follow God's word, and no matter the consequence, we understand that consequences will come. So we must make the decision to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, not for our passions but for the will of God. Now, this is all human, desi- human desires and God's will, or they're, they're at odds with one another, and, and we have to decide where we're going to aim our life. We have to decide where is it going to be? Where is this? If I'm going to choose to do this, then I need to do this. I need to aim myself in this direction. Maybe I can explain it this way. If I go out in the field and I say, see that deer over there? I'm going to shoot that deer. I like deer meat, so I'm going to shoot that deer and I'm going to have some deer meat. Have I shot the deer? No. What, what do I have to do in order to do that? I have to pick up the gun and aim it in the direction that I'm going to shoot it. Now that seems common sense, right? But so often in the Christian life, we say, see God's will over there, see his word, I'm going to do that. But we never aim our life in that direction. We never point our life there. Peter is saying that, that since Christ suffered, we're going to arm ourselves, we're, and we're going to point ourselves, we're going to aim ourselves in the direction of God's will over and against anything else, no matter the consequence. Where have you aimed your life? What's the next thing that you're seeking for your life? What's the the big thing that's driving you? Maybe it's just getting through work this week. Maybe Maybe it's having a retirement. Maybe it's just having a job. Maybe it's who knows what it is. Peter is calling us to live for something bigger, something more eternal, to live for God and not for ourselves. That's why he continues by giving us suffering's big picture in verses 3 through 6. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Literally, for doing what the Gentiles will. Living in 
sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What Peter has done here is he's zoomed out, and he's given the the, the Christians a, another, another view, a bigger view. He, he's zoomed out and he's given them this, this picture, this big picture for our suffering. And, and as we consider this big picture for our suffering, we need to see it in, in three time frames, if you will. Three, three timelines. He gives us a picture of the past, a picture of the present, and a picture of the future. And in the past, he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, why would Peter remember say that? He's not like reminiscing here, you know, like, oh, remember the good old days. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter, Peter is, he is, he is reminding them that those are things of the past. The time, he says, for the time that is past, that is before this, that was enough. That was enough for doing what Gentiles will, the will that is opposed to God's will. That, that is enough for that. And then he recounts for them what that lifestyle was like to remind them, this is not who you are. He says, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Now, as you see those descriptors there, there should be one thing that sticks out to you, and that is a lack of restraint. A lack of restraint. They are giving themselves to their passions without restraint. With, with no, no control. And he ends with this idea of lawless idolatry. Restraintless idolatry. I'm going to worship whatever is put before me. This, this is the kind of people that they were. This is the kind of people that you were. You and I were these kind of people, given to sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And you may say, I have not been a part of any of that. You have a heart that wants all of them apart from the work of Christ. That is who we are. We are born in sin. We are the kind of people that not only sin, but like sinning. That is the kind of people we were before Christ, by His grace, transformed our hearts and made us want something different. But that's not who you are now. See, too often we get in the middle of suffering and we think, you know, I used to do that. Why can't I do that again? I used to be that kind of person. 
I, I, that, that's who I was, right? Even, maybe even Satan uses some of our friends during that time and be like, I know you say you're a believer now, but don't you remember that time? Don't you remember what it was like when... Don't, don't you, you... You've done it before and everything's worked out okay. You, you've, maybe these are not the list of sins for you, but maybe it's another list. And we continue, we, we begin thinking about these things and we begin thinking, well, maybe that is who I want to be. But in Christ, we have to remember there's a bigger picture. That's not who we are. That is who we were. You do not have to be who you were. That's why he continues to the present. With respect to this, respect to who you were, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You shouldn't be surprised that that's not who you are anymore. And you shouldn't be surprised that they don't understand. But they are astonished that you're different. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. When someone comes to Christ and they begin acting differently, you begin thinking, what? Who are they? This is a different person. You're right, it is a different person. The old man has been buried in death and the new man has been risen and given new life, right? That, that is what they declared. It is a new person. They are surprised and because they are surprised, they will malign you or mock you or, or tear you down. It's because they don't understand. It's because they may be offended. How many of you have, after coming to Christ, have met a lost person and been like, you're not that kind of person. The lost, the lost, the lost look at you and they're like, what kind of fake, who are you trying to be? And they try to tear you down because why? You just think you're better than me. And this is where we as believers need to remind them of our past. We need to say, no, I don't think I'm better than you. I actually think I'm worse than you, but God's grace transformed me, and it can transform you as well. This is what Peter's trying to remind them. Remember your place in suffering. Why? Because our present suffering isn't the final word. That's why he continues with the future. But they, those who malign you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I want to ask you something. Okay, if we have living people and dead people, who else is left? Anybody? You all look like you're asleep. Who else is left? Who else is left? Just, he's living. <laughs> There's no one left. If we have living people and dead people, the only people that are left is no one. And what does it say here? He is going to judge the living and the dead. That means there's no one that is going to escape the judgment of God. What? He's reminding them that God will need an account from everyone. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. 
This is why the gospel was preached to those who even now are now dead. And, and what that means there is that the gospel was preached to those who have gone before us. This is why the gospel was preached to them. Why? That though judged in the flesh, though they experience the death that is promised because of sin, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is reminding us again of, of Christ who has died in the flesh but was living by the Spirit. We who are judged in the flesh, who have died in the flesh, that we might live in the Spirit the way God does. You see, this is not, this moment, your, your trials in this moment are not the final word. There is, there is something bigger going on. You're, the suffering that you experience now isn't the final word. How many of you, if you have siblings, and I don't, but I see this in my children, you always want the last word, right? And an argument. Because what does the last word mean? You won, right? So if you get the last word, then, then you've won the argument. And too often, we want to give the last word to our circumstances, to our suffering. We want to give that final word to our suffering and be like, I quit. I give. I don't know what else to do. But Peter is reminding him, no, there is one who will have the final word, who will judge and give an account, and that is God the Father. He will judge the living and the dead, but for those who are in Christ, those who have accepted the gospel, there will be life. And you may be saying, well, how does this big picture of past, present, and future help me? Let me ask, ask you this. Have you ever been in a, like one of those giant corn mazes? I thought, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a kid's thing. Until you get in them. And then you're like, where am I at? Now, in that moment, you can just cut through the corn, right? That's what everybody else does. So you just go, you just go wherever you're going to go. But you can't figure out where you're going. Why? Because you only see what's in front of you. Many of you in your suffering are only seeing what's in front of you. That's why it's important to zoom out and see the big picture, as if you were zooming out and looking at a map of the corn, corn maze. Then what happens? Oh, well, you know exactly where to go. You know exactly how to get through this, this moment, because you know, you know where all the turns are and all the, all the things that are going to happen. Peter is zooming out and giving us the big picture to say, what's in front of you is not all there is. Here, here's how it's going to go. You are going to be the kind of person that wants to sin. And then something strange is going to happen to you, and you're going to be transformed by God. And then something else is going to happen. When you're transformed by God, other people aren't going to understand. And a matter of fact, they may even make fun of you and think you're weird. But you know what? They don't have the last word. God does. God will judge them for themselves. You continue pressing forward. Because there is life at the end of the tunnel. That's the big picture map that Peter is giving us here. So that when you are tempted to find yourself fitting in with your old way of life, you can say, that's not who I am anymore. I know the big picture. So that when you are surprised and ashamed by the disapproval of your lost friends, you can remind yourself, that's not who I am anymore. God promised me this would happen, but this is not the end. 
so that when you and I lose sight of the goal at the end of the day, we can remember, I can still walk with Christ because this is not the end. There is something else after this. There is something bigger. So how do you prepare, how are you preparing for today's battle? You see, because the battle is not tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. But the battle is today. To begin doubting who we are and begin thinking something different. Many of you today may be sitting here thinking, well, I'm safe. Prepare for the battle that is before you. Arm yourself. Meditate on God's plan for your suffering. Think about God's truth that is declared in his word and stand firm in that truth. Bow with me in prayer.